Hey, Edge of Sports listeners, this is Dave Zirin. If you live in Seattle, you got to come out to Town Hall Seattle on January 5th. I'll be interviewing Seattle Seahawk Michael Bennett, otherwise known as Moses Bread 72. I'm going to be talking to Michael Bennett about sports, politics, and everything in between by one of the most thoughtful guys out there. Details to get tickets in the description of this podcast. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we speak to Michael Mirapol, the son of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, the married couple executed on June 19th, 1953, for conspiracy to commit espionage. Today, it is widely accepted, thanks to declassified documents, that Ethel Rosenberg was innocent, executed as part of U.S. Cold War posturing against the Russians. In 1953, Michael Mirapol, just a young boy, approached the White House with his brother Robert with a letter for Dwight Eisenhower begging that their mother be spared. Last week, 63 years after they approached the White House, they did so again, asking President Obama to clear their mother's name. Ethel Rosenberg's trial was a travesty. It was an unjust conviction. Her conviction and death sentence were unjust, and her execution was wrongful. And I spoke to Michael Mirapol, and he told me about the importance of baseball to his parents and the presence in the letters they sent their sons from death row. And I have Michael Mirapol on the line to speak about baseball, the Rosenbergs, and the execution of two parents. Michael Mirapol, for those who are just simply not familiar with the history What was the rationale used by the state to execute your parents, the Rosenbergs? Very, very straightforward. They had stolen the secret of the atom bomb and placed our nation's very survival in jeopardy, all by themselves. All by themselves. Well, through David Greenglass. In other words, um, my mother's brother was an army machinist at Los Alamos, New Mexico, where the first atom bombs were built. And through snooping around and drawing diagrams, and writing up descriptive material, he conveyed through my parents the secret of the atomic bomb, the implosion-type bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki, and that led the Soviets to the bomb, which, in the words of the judge, caused the Korean War, and in the words of President Eisenhower, caused any future nuclear war. Okay, and all of that put on the shoulders of your parents, Julius Nethel Rosenberg. Right, because they allegedly recruited David Greenglass who did it, but then, you know, had remorse, and so he turned on them, and for that he earned a 15-year sentence, and his wife, who collaborated with him, was named an unindicted co-conspirator and never spent a day in jail in return for their testimony. Wow, and and these are members of your family. That's right, that's right, my uncle and aunt. Wow. Yep. So that's the state's case. That's the state's case. What do we now know about the case against the Rosenbergs? Okay, well, we know for certain, and the state admitted this as long ago as 1967, that the material that David Greenglass transmitted was of little, if any, value. There was actually secret testimony from the general who ran Los Alamos, General Leslie Groves, as early as 1954, who said that the material that went out in the case of the Rosenbergs was of little value. Mm. And when top scientists examined the materials, in the 60s, they determined that it was uselessly crude, 
full of errors, the secret of nothing, et cetera, et cetera. And what do we know now about the involvement particularly of your mother, Ethel Rosenberg, or I should say lack of involvement yes. of your mother, Ethel yes. Rosenberg? Yes. Um, beginning as early as 1975, contradictions between what the Greenglasses said at the trial and what they were telling the FBI, particularly about my mother, had begun to emerge. The prosecutor at the um, trial had made a big deal about testimony of mother doing typing. The prosecutor said she went to the typewriter and struck the keys blow upon blow against her country and in the interest of the Soviets. And that had made a great impression on the jury because in 1975, a number of jurors were interviewed, including a man who refused initially to convict my mother because he could not imagine putting a woman to death. And the rest of the jury said, look, you know, what she did might cause your children to die. And so the guy voted for conviction. And what she did allegedly was the typing. Mm. We now know, based on David Greenglass's grand jury testimony, which was only released two summers ago, or one summer ago, that uh, he denied her involvement totally. He and his wife said nothing about typing. The typing story didn't exist until a month before the trial. So with the typing story gone, there's nothing about her. She She's not guilty of anything. Beyond the actual evidence, what do you think was the motivation of the state, of Dwight Eisenhower later refusing any sort of pardons or clemency? What was their motivation to go after the Rosenbergs so hard and settle for nothing less than death? Well, we now know that my father was involved in trying to help the Soviet Union during and even after World War II. And he had basically been a recruiter. He'd gotten a bunch of his friends who were science and engineering type people to provide information. The government knew this. They had some individuals in their sights, and they wanted my father to, in effect, roll on them. And he refused. And so very early on, after he was arrested, they were contemplating, you know, was there a case against my mother? And the uh, attorney general, one of the people in the attorney general's office, said that there's not enough evidence to indict her, but she might be useful to use as a lever against her husband. Mm. And that's it. I mean, it's, you know, I, I say, I've said this many times. It's like hostage taking. You know, they put a gun to her head and they looked at my father in the eye and they said, talk or we'll kill her. Which is a, a not uncommon tactics in dictatorships yeah, around the terrorists. world. I mean, it's an act of terrorism. Yeah. So when he couldn't come across, they killed her. And they blithely say, I mean, there was a quote from a man who later was the Secretary of State. He was then an assistant attorney general. His name is William Rogers. When asked, you know, what went wrong? He said, yeah, we didn't want to kill her. We wanted her to talk. And so they say, what went wrong? And he said, she called our bluff. I mean, that's mm -hmm. really nice. What were the ramifications upon your family as well as the broader left in this country following the execution of the Rosenbergs? Well, the family, I mean, it was it was really interesting. I mean, the Greenglass family rallied around their son, and they basically put a tremendous amount of pressure on my mother to, you know, abandon my father and, you know, back up David's story. And they used Robbie and me as pawns at times. All of this is detailed in my brother's and my book, We Are Your Sons, if people are interested. And the Rosenberg side of the family, I mean, look, my father and mother were fighting for their lives, and so they pleaded innocent. They said they were totally innocent above everything. They called the Greenglasses liars on every score. And, you know, we now know with 2020 hindsight that that wasn't 100% true. 
And in so doing, they convinced their family to support them. And their family did support them, you know, with great courage and interest. And my grandmother particularly, you know, she went and pleaded before the judge. She appeared publicly. My father's uh, two sisters and brother visited him regularly, supported Robbie and me. And, you know, they gave them a lot of sustenance, but they were scared. One of my father's sisters uh, could have taken us into their home, but she was scared. She and her husband ran a business, and they were afraid that, you know, the business would basically be destroyed if it was heard that they were related. None of the family members took us in. My grandmother took us in, and the family members supported my grandmother, but she was old and she had high blood pressure, and we were pretty high-strung kids. That only lasted about a year, and we ended up living with family friends till um, the December after my parents were uh, killed and uh, then moved in with Anne and Abel Mirapol, which is how Robbie and I have that name. And Abel Mirapol correct me if I'm wrong, is the author of what Time Magazine named the song of the 20th century, Strange Fruit. Absolutely. Words and music. Most famously sung by Billie Holiday. Absolutely. Yes, yes. Uh, We are extremely proud of Dad. And uh, over the years, he's gotten his due from uh, a film called Strange Fruit as well as a book about Strange Fruit. Southern trees bear a strange fruit Blood on the leaves and blood at the root. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze. Strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. It's remarkable. It's hard not to see the parallel nature of the fact that he writes the great song of the 20th century, and it's about lynching. Yeah, and then my parents get lynched. While raising two boys whose parents were legally lynched. Yep, yep, absolutely amazing, absolutely amazing. Pure serendipity. Uh, Abel and Ann didn't know my parents, but they knew very closely a woman that was working in my parents' attorney's office, and it was her recommendation that led Manny Block to make what we consider the the best decision he ever made for us in his life. <laughs> mm. uh, and so let me ask you this. What are you and your brother Robert now asking from President Obama with regards to your mother, Ethel Rosenberg? What we would like to see is a proclamation very similar to the one that Governor Michael Dukakis issued in 1977 about Sacco and Uh were two anarchists convicted of a murder that I'm absolutely convinced they did not commit and were sentenced to death and executed in the midst of anti-anarchist hysteria and and also anti-Italian immigrant hysteria. And Michael Dukakis in 1977, having studied the case, issued a proclamation in which he said that the trial was tainted by prejudice and ignorance and uh, perjured testimony, and as a result, no shadow of guilt should be attached to their name. In effect, his proclamation nullified the jury's verdict. And we would like to see something similar from President Obama, basically saying that Ethel Rosenberg's trial was a travesty. It was an unjust conviction. Her conviction and death sentence were unjust, and her execution was wrongful. And that would be great. That would be a a reckoning uh, by the United States government with a, literally, let's say it, a crime committed in all of our names. 
And I, I hate the fact that everything has to tie back into Donald Trump, but there's a connection between Donald Trump and the execution of the Rosenbergs, is there not? It is hard to believe. You, you can't make this stuff up, Dave. On the program 60 Minutes, David Greenglass, in describing how he came to lie about my mother's typing, and he admitted he admitted that he had lied. He didn't just change his testimony. He admitted that his trial testimony was perjury. And the 60 Minutes interviewer asked him, well, who was it that uh, you know, told you to make this change? And he said it was Prosecutor Roy Cohn, later famous for being Joe McCarthy's whisperer. Well, Roy Cohn was also, on the record, Donald Trump's mentor. Donald Trump described Roy Cohn as the guy who taught him how to negotiate and how to never give up and how to fight like crazy. And so, uh, you know, it all comes back. You know, Roy Cohn, who got David Greenglass to lie about my mother, killing my mother, is the man who gave us Donald Trump, among other people, of course. Jesus Christ. Yep, you got it. All right, so let's talk baseball. Oh, yes, let's talk baseball. I, I know you have the letters of your parents, and I, I would be honored if you could read them. But first, can you give us some background as to why your parents, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, why they liked baseball, uh, what their team was, and why, yeah. you know, in the midst of this horror of their lives on yeah. death row, wrote to you and Robert about baseball? Well, first of all, I had grown up knowing that he loved baseball. Now, you have to understand, I we didn't have a television. So I never saw a baseball game until sometime in 1952 on television. I attended one baseball game in 1951. I was only eight years old. I didn't really follow the action very much. But we, my father would take me to a park. He'd throw a rubber ball, what we used to call a Spalding. Of course, it's a Spalding, but a rubber ball to me. I'd have a little wooden bat, and I'd hit it over his head, and that would be it. We would play baseball in the apartment. We would use a kind of um, like a paddle ball racket to hit the ball around. And if it landed in my brother's crib, he would say it's into the bullpen for a double. <laughs> so I knew a little bit about baseball, and I knew that he and mom were Brooklyn Dodgers fans. And I, at some point, pretty early on, probably after they were arrested, because I, I was seven when they were arrested and not that aware, I knew that it was in part because the Dodgers had broken the color bar by bringing up Jackie Robinson. And later on, I discovered that an awful lot of lefties just became Dodger fans as soon as 1947 rolled around. Mm -hmm. And certainly they were. And I, I can prove that to you from their letters. By the way, these are letters they exchanged with each other. Mm. And it just so happens that in the summer of 1952 or maybe 53, I was given one of my first baseball books, which is a long series of portraits of individual players. And the portrait of Jackie Robinson begins with a particular play that he makes on the last day of the regular season in 1951, when the Giants had just completed the miracle of Coogan's Bluff. They came back from 13 and a half games back to on the last day of the season, they won their game. And if the Dodgers don't win, the Giants win the pennant. So it turns out it's an extra inning game between the Dodgers and the Phillies in Philadelphia on that Sunday afternoon. And with the bases loaded and two outs in the bottom of the 12th inning, Eddie Wakeus hits a line drive over second base. The ball hits the ground. The Dodgers lose the pennant. But Jackie Robinson's playing second. He dives face first, catches the ball on the backhand, slams his elbow into his chest, knocks the wind out of him, lies on the field motionless. 
And remember, I'm an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old. I'm reading this in the thing. And who knows if the writer's right or not, but the writer says, in the stands, a woman sobs. And it's Rachel Robinson who later said, I saw my man lying there as if he were dead. Well, he rolls over, holds up the ball, out. Top of the 14th inning, he wins the game with a home run. My father, that day, he's writing, September 30th, 1951. Today, I spent most of the afternoon keeping my ear glued to the radio, tensely listening to the splendid game which the Dodgers finally won. The remarkable playing of the heart of the game, Jackie Robinson gave it a thrilling finish with a home run. Now I hope to beat the Giants in the playoffs and go on to win the World Series from the Yankees. They got to listen to baseball while in the death house at Sing Sing. They only saw each other once a week, so they wrote each other three letters a week. I ended up transcribing, typing, retyping every single letter, some of it from typed copies and some of it from handwriting, which I finally got finished in like 1994. And um, it's really great having this. Mm. So two days later, my mother's writing. So that's October 2nd. They didn't have any weights, right? They went right to the playoffs. So the first game, October 1st, the Giants win 3-1 to one at Ebbets Field. The next two games are going to be played at the Polo Grounds. Dodgers are out of pitchers. They put a rookie reliever, a guy named Clem Labine. He'd only pitched six games the entire year. And he throws a complete game shutout. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And the Dodgers win 10 to zip. So here's my mother. Concerning the Dodgers, I must confess I've bitten off every last confounded navel. 10 to nothing. What a trouncing. The Dodgers hit like four home runs in the game. It's that indomitable spirit, that inability to say die, that has endeared them to so many thousands of human beings. But it is chiefly in their outstanding contribution to the eradication of racial prejudice that they have covered themselves with glory. By their simple demonstration of victorious teamwork, they have flung back the lie into the teeth of the fascists, and the American people owe them a great, real debt of gratitude. That was Ethel Rosenberg. I just got to repeat that. Those are the words of Ethel Rosenberg about the Brooklyn Dodgers. Yeah, and what's interesting about this is you have to understand that pretty soon after my father started saving the letters, which was in April of 1951, They knew they were writing not just to each other. They knew that they were writing for people out there. So every once in a while, you can be clear that they're writing in a way that they want. uh, They they know other people are going to be reading it. Right. Their letters are very interesting because there's a lot of personal anguish stuff that it's obvious they don't want anybody to see. And then it's political stuff, which some people criticize as posturing. And I just think it's trying to make their points. Absolutely. So then it goes on. It goes on because then, of course, you get <laughs> the shot heard around the world. And, you know, how are my parents going to react? Well, here's my father. Just to be clear for everybody, that's Bobby Thompson winning the pennant with a home run off Ralph Bronca. And then, of course, the famous call from Russ Hodges, the Giants win the pennant. The Giants win the pennant. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so here's my father writing on October 4th. Gloom of glooms. The dear Dodgers lost the pennant, and now I'm rooting for the Giants to lick the Yankees. When will the New York Yankees become part of modern American baseball and lift the discriminately ban on Negro baseball stars? The superb performance of the Negro stars on both the Dodgers and the Giants has blasted the theory of race supremacists. Now, what's beautiful about that is that's true. 
I mean, that yeah. was Willie Mays' first season. Yeah, Willie Mays was on deck when Thompson hit his home run. Yeah, and Monty Irvin hit a home run in one of the earlier games, or maybe even in that game. Jackie Robinson hit a home run in the 10 nothing game. It was really a very fascinating, uh, important playoff, and it showcased black stars that, you know, obviously Jackie Robinson played in the 1947 World Series, and both Satchel Pays and Larry Doby played in the 1948 World Series. And Don Newcomb became the first black starting pitcher in a World Series game in 49. So Americans were well on their way to watching black ball players play in Major League Baseball, not just in the Negro Leagues. And yet the Yankees stubbornly stayed all white, as many American League teams did. Yes, it was unbelievable. The left, the left, by the way, went wild attacking the Yankees. I mean, I, I became such a Yankee hater because of that, not only that, but because they kept beating the Dodgers, <laughs> that when I moved to Boston, I was willing to become a Boston Red Sox fan, even though the Red Sox are even more racist than the Yankees <laughs> were, anyway. Hey, it's a, the, the enemy of my enemy. Yeah, you got it. The enemy of my enemy. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, o- the only acceptable reason to be a Red Sox fan. Yeah, I hear that. <laughs> hey, Mike Mirapol, really do appreciate the time. And one thing I got to say is that one thing this story shows to me is the way that sports and baseball can really be a tether to humanity, even in the most difficult and inhuman experiences that anybody has to go through like your parents did. Well, and and also the comfort that it gave to uh, us as kids. Mm. I mean, we had baseball to fall back on. The summer of 1953, after my parents were killed, I was glued to the TV set watching the Dodgers go through the 1953 season. It was a pretty important thing for them when they were in prison. It was a pretty important thing for me as a 10-year-old. Wow. Mike Mirapol, really do appreciate the time. Thank you for reading your parents' letters, and thank you for being with us. Our great, My great pleasure, Dave. Thank you. And I promise you we will have a link in the description of this podcast for how people can be part of the Exonerate Ethel movement. Yeah, fantastic. Until this, until January, it ain't over till it's over, as somebody once said. And until January 20th, there's still time to try to convince President Obama to do the right thing. Hey, if Mike Mirapol can quote a Yankee like Yogi Berra, then is anything is I possible. Quoted? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that, that, that's the sign of you, you building the bridge. It's, it's good. <laughs> Thank you so much, You're sir. more than welcome, Dave. Have a good one. Yeah, bye-bye. Blood on the leaves. And now it's time for some choice words about the importance of a rap icon to the sport of basketball. So if you didn't hear this, on October 29th, the legendary 57-year-old rap god Curtis Blow went into cardiac arrest, his pulse stopping for five minutes. He survived this ordeal and is already back on tour, rocking mics for as long as you like. Even though, and perhaps especially because, the seminal, trailblazing 1980s rap icon still walks among us, it is worth appreciating all he has meant to not only rap music, but also hoops. Without Curtis Blow, it is safe to say 
that not only hip-hop as we know it would not exist, but perhaps the league as we know it, the NBA, would not exist either. In 1984, Curtis Blow dropped the track Basketball off of the Ego Trip album. It's a celebration of the past and present of the game, with references to everyone from Magic Bird and Dr. J to Willis Reed, Earl the Pearl. I used to go to dinner to take the third and see Tiny play against Earl the Pearl and Will and Jerry West play basketball at its very best. Basketball has always been my thing. I like Magic Bird and Bernard King. And number 33, my man, Kareem, is the center of my starting team. And of course, he asked the question because he loved history. Tell me if you were in the joint the night Wilt scored 100 points when the Celtics won titles back-to-back and didn't give nobody no kind of flap, when Dr. J shook the whole damn team with moves that came right out of a dream, when Willis Reed stood so tall playing D with his eyes. That's basketball. Now, the year basketball dropped, the league was just beginning its meteoric rise from moribund status. I mean, the NBA was practically flatlining as a professional league. Magic and Bird had just faced off for the first time in the NBA Finals. And to give a sense about what a historic pivot this was in 1984, there is no mention in Curtis Blow's song Basketball of a promising rookie by the name of Michael Jordan. But even without Jordan's marketing magic, Basketball by Mr. Curtis Blow was a crossover rap hit single at a time when those were few and far between. The song not only traveled to a broad audience well beyond Blow's native Harlem, it was embraced by someone who worked just a couple of miles but several worlds away, new NBA commissioner David Stern. Basketball marked the beginning of an extremely lucrative and at times very uneasy and exploitative collaboration between the NBA and hip-hop. Stern had Basketball by Mr. Curtis Blow used in promotional videos, and it has remained central to the league, heard by a new generation in the soundtrack to the NBA 2K video game. But the NBA's acceptance and promotion of Curtis Blow's Basketball had greater ramifications than just some marketing tie-ins. It led many young kids, myself included, to discover hip-hop. I bought Blow's album Ego Trip by my 10th birthday and just listened to Basketball on Rewind until the tape wore out. But in the process, I became enamored with other tracks on the record, including the classic AJ Scratch, and one of the first singles to try and communicate the reality of black urban life in the Reagan 80s, Eight Million Stories, with its refrain, Eight Million Stories in the Naked City, Some Ice Cold and Told Without Pity. That track featured an MC who started his career as son of Curtis Blow, DJ Run of Run DMC. Once I learned about Run DMC, I was all in, and hardly alone. The synthesis of Curtis Blow and the exploding popularity of the NBA 
was unwittingly turning a generation of young people onto hip hop. Curtis Blow's Harlem was going global, and David Stern's game was the vehicle and going global as well. But basketball didn't just alter how we saw the game. It changed the way the game saw itself. From David Stern's marketing gurus to Nike's high-top engineers designing the first Air Jordan later that very year, they saw that this league, which as recently as 1979 was showing its finals on tape delay, could define cool in the 1980s and beyond. This all must seem so obvious today, but the idea that basketball, as well as the sneaker industry, could ride a black musical art form devised just a few years earlier in the South Bronx to global domination must have seemed laughable. This took vision and daring to see what was not already apparent. It also led to what has happened all too often when black music and corporate America meet, exploitation, with everyone except the people who created the art form becoming inordinately wealthy. In other words, none of the NBA slash hip-hop empire building happens, or at the very least, none of it happens the way we remember it happening without the skills of Curtis Blow. If everyone who has become wealthy from the basketball hip-hop synthesis tithed 1% of their earnings to Curtis Blow, he could live out his days in a platinum palace. But chances are, even if they did, he would emerge to find a stage, kick a hole in the speaker, pull the plug, and jet. Tell me, were you in the jungle? The night won't score a hundred points. But when the Celtics won, Tigers back to back and didn't give nobody no kind of fact. But when Dr. J shook the whole damn team with moves that came right out of a dream. But when Willis Reed stood so tall, playing deep with his eyes, basketball. Also this week, uh, you know, we have a new regular segment called Kaepernick Watch, where we look at the latest of what Colin Kaepernick is doing politically. This week was a classic this past week. Colin Kaepernick, if you missed the game against the Chicago Bears, was benched. He had his worst game as a pro. He actually threw for five yards in this game. One for four for five yards, I believe, was the final tally. Or maybe it was one for five for four yards. I don't think anybody's really going to quibble about that figure. Just his worst game as a pro by a country mile. The weather was terrible. Blaine Gabbard, his replacement, sure as hell didn't do much better. That's Colin Kaepernick. And tragically, it's coming off four games where he had his most total yards in the history of his career, despite the fact that his team is absolutely atrocious. So Colin Kaepernick had to face the press after the game. He answered questions about his performance. He answered questions about being benched. He answered questions about leaked reports that he's opting out of his contract after this year. And he did it all wearing a Fred Hampton t-shirt underneath the slogan, you can kill the revolutionary, but not the revolution. Now, Fred Hampton, for folks who don't know, was an absolutely iconic and ahead of his time organizer for the Chicago chapter of the Black Panther Party, who was killed in his bed in his sleep by Chicago police, along with Mark Clark. Now, what makes it so particularly sharp that Colin Kaepernick was wearing this Fred Hampton shirt is that he did so on the anniversary, December 4th, of Fred Hampton's execution by the Chicago PD. So just a remarkable statement in the midst of all the controversy of what he's dealing with in terms of his play, in terms of his terrible franchise. He is there. Fred Hampton. Boom. 
representing. You can kill the revolutionary, but not the revolution. That's Kaepernick Watch for this week. To learn more about Fred Hampton, please check out both the book by Flint Taylor, a tremendous book about the execution of Fred Hampton, and as well the documentary Black Panther's Vanguard of the Revolution, which was on PBS, which devotes a surprising and significant and worthy amount of time right in the middle of that doc to the life of Fred Hampton. Big ups to Stanley Nelson, the person who put that documentary together. That's all for this week. Thank you, Michael Mirapol, for appearing as a guest. Thank you to Curtis Blow for your existence. Thank you, David Tigabu, our associate producer. Thank you, Dan Bloom on the Wheels of Steel. Dan Bloom is back, as I'm sure you have heard in the production of this show. And big shout out to Michael Bennett, Seattle Seahawk, who is going to be on stage with me January 5th at Town Hall Seattle. I'm going to be interviewing Michael Bennett on stage. Please come on out to that event if you're in the Seattle area. We will have a link to buy tickets in the description of this podcast. Remember, you can always call in to the Edge of Sports hotline. That's 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. Please give us your thoughts about the interview with Michael Mirapol, Curtis Blow, Colin Kaepernick and Fred Hampton, Kenny Stills, the Dream Defenders, anything we spoke about this week. Please rate the show on iTunes, write a review. It makes a huge difference to what we're trying to do. We're going to build this podcast one listener at a time. Please be part of that process. For everybody out there in Edge of Sports land, stay frosty, people. I'm Dave Zirin. Peace. Peace.